0: Dorothy Parker was a famously wry, witty, and acerbic writer and critic with a low opinion of relationships. Her wit was apparent from a young age, referring to her father's second wife as the housekeeper. She was described by journalist and critic Alexander Wolcott as a combination of Little Nell and Lady Macbeth. As a literary critic, she said of one book, this is not a novel to be tossed aside lightly, It should be thrown with great force. The author of that book? Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode drops on International Women's Day, and I've covered a lot of remarkable women over the years, for a number of remarkable reasons. But today, we focus on women for their remarks— for their wit and their wild ways. Tallulah Bankhead is a name that I've known for many years, but never really knew anything about her. Back in the day, going to the big computer show and sale at the Raceway Complex with my dad, circa 1996, I picked up some CD-ROMs of FMV video games and some educational stuff on the clearance table, like Microsoft and Carta musical instruments, and some reference that included hundreds of famous quotes. That's how I first found Tallulah. Some of you, I realize, will have no idea what I just said. A few of you will be unclear what a CD-ROM is, but a few of you got a cold chill like someone walking over your grave. Tallulah Bankhead's wit featured prominently in that collection with quotes like I read Shakespeare and the Bible and I can shoot dice, that's what I call a liberal education. And I'll come and make love to you at 5 o'clock, if I'm late, start without me. Some of you, I realize, will have no idea what I just said, a few of you will be unclear what a CD-ROM is, but a few of you got a cold chill like someone walking over your grave. I like her, I thought, but didn't look into who she actually was until this week. Considering she's the inspiration for one of Disney's most iconic villains, you'd think I'd have come across her between then and now, but no. Bankhead was the daughter of an Alabama congressman named after her paternal grandmother, who was in turn named after the Tallulah Falls in Georgia. That grandmother would raise her when her mother died a few days after giving birth, and the loss sent her father into a pit of depression and alcoholism. Little Tallulah was... difficult. She discovered at an early age that theatrics were a viable outlet to get the attention, good or bad, that she craved. A series of chronic throat and chest infections as a child left her with a permanently raspy voice, which as an adult would become her trademark.
1: Olivia, my dear, would you mind coming here for a moment? I must say, a more tender, a lovely Juliet I've never seen.
2: Thank you very much, Tallulah.
1: Except, of course, when I
0: played it. (laughs) (laughs) But as a child, made her stand out from her classmates. Tallulah was not the type to be bullied for long, and soon became the terror of the students and the bane of her teachers. She would find herself sent to, and subsequently expelled from, two different convent schools the first time for throwing her ink well at a nun, the next time for making a pass at one. At 15, Bankhead submitted her photo to the film industry magazine Picture Play, winning a small part in a movie and a trip to New York. She was allowed to go only by promising her father that she would abstain from men and alcohol. But as she famously put it in her autobiography, he didn't say anything about women and cocaine. She was a self-described technical virgin until 20. Though she lacked training and discipline, she possessed a dazzling stage presence, her husky voice providing fascinating contrast to her sharp looks. Rapidly rising to stardom, she just as easily gained renown for her quick-witted outspokenness and indefatigable partygoing. In New York, she moved into the famous Algonquin Hotel a hotspot for the artistic and literary elite of the era, and was quickly rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous. After several years starring in films and on stage in New York, Bankhead's acting was praised, but she hadn't yet scored a big commercial success. So she moved to London in 1923, where her stardom grew. Her fame grew in 1924 when she played Amy in Sidney Howard's They knew what they wanted, which won a Pulitzer the following year. But Bankhead was best known for her antics off stage. She'd drive her Bentley recklessly through London, and if she got lost, which you do in London, she'd hire a black cab, not to take her to where she was going, but to drive there and she'd follow him. She spent her nights at booze and drug-filled parties, partaking liberally and was reported to smoke 120 cigarettes a day, six packs, which is kind of dubious because how would you have time for anything else? She also openly had a series of relationships with both men and women, including some very famous female personalities of the day. Names attached to her, with or without evidence to back it up, included Greta Garbo, Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American actress to win an Oscar, and singer Billie Holiday. One thing that's known with great certainty is that she talked openly about her vices, and women just weren't supposed to do that. Hell, they weren't supposed to have vices back then. She found herself included in the Hayes Doom Book, which would help her to inspire a Disney villain since only the worst of the worst were in the Doom Book but it didn't do much for her actual career as a person. A brief refresher on The Hayes Code, which you can hear lots more about in the episode Words You Can't Say on TV or Radio way back in October 2018 before I started wisely numbering the episodes. The Hayes Code was a set of strict guidelines that all motion picture companies operated under from 1934 to 1968 and was a reflection of social trends at the time, to stamp down immorality. It prohibited, among many other things, profanity, suggestive nudity, sexual perversion, which of course includes homosexuality, interracial relationships, any talk of reproductive anything, and in case you were unclear where this all came from, banned ridicule of authority in general and the clergy in particular. This is why married couples in black-and-white sitcoms slept in separate beds. The Doom Book, which was either a closely guarded secret or never actually existed, was said to have contained the names of over 150 thespians, considered too morally turpitudinous to be used in the movies. So this was the law governing the land when a gal like Tallulah Bankhead is running around Cursing like a sailor in a hedonistic, drug-fueled, openly bisexual glee. Giving up on Hollywood, Bankhead returned to Broadway for a decade or so, where she reached her zenith with her performances in The Little Foxes and The Skin of Our Teeth, both of which earned her the New York Drama Critics Circle Award. And she was briefly married to actor John Emery. Never heard of him? Me neither. What's his story? I didn't bother. In 1943, she decided to give Hollywood another go, but Hollywood wasn't looking to rekindle its relationship with her. There was one bright spot, being cast in and praised for Alfred Hitchcock's lifeboat in 1944. By the late 40s and early 50s, her hedonistic lifestyle and excessive drinking had taken their toll. Critics complained she'd become a sort of self caricature which must feel like a real oof. She kept her career afloat by publishing a best-selling autobiography, touring in plays like Private Lives and Dear Charles, before headlining her own nightclub act. It doesn't say that this was in drag clubs, but it just so feels like a drag club act. In 1965, she made her last film appearance playing a homicidal religious fanatic in the British thriller Die, Die, My Darling, Tallulah Bankhead's final acting assignments included a special guest villain stint on the TV series Batman. When she was advised that the series was considered high camp, she responded, Don't tell me about camp, darling. I invented it. So am I ever going to tell you which Disney villain she inspired? I suppose. Disney animator Mark Davis once told of his creative process when tasked to create the villain for an upcoming film. This was in 1961, if you want to try to guess ahead of me. The character would become iconic, instantly recognizable, whether portrayed in cartoon or real life, which she has been several times. Davis looked to real-life bad girls, and while there were a number of different people he kept in mind while creating this villain, one name rose to the top again and again, to Lula Bankhead. So no matter if her movie or Broadway career is forgotten, she will always live on as Cruella Deville. My little history and fun trivia podcast is what's considered evergreen content, meaning it's not necessarily tied to a specific moment in time. You can listen to any episode anytime, and it's, you know, equally relevant. But at the same time, I can't ignore what's going on in the world. It's also really good to provide an alternative to news of the day, an educational escape, if you will. But I can't ignore what's going on in the world, particularly not if war were declared, and two weeks ago, war were declared, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So over at yourbrainonfacts.com merch... I've created a t-shirt in support of Ukraine, emblazoned with the now famous, as far as we know, last words of the defenders of Snake Island, who said, Russian warship, go f yourself. But it's in Ukrainian, so you can, like, wear it to work. Asterisk, I'm not responsible for you being fired for wearing go f- yourself in Ukrainian on your t-shirt. But every last cent I receive from the sale of those t-shirts will go to the Ukrainian Red Cross. And I'll add in that much more of my own money on top of it. So go to yourbrainonfacts.com merch. It will take you directly over to my tea Public store. And to the person or persons who bought a whole bunch of shirts over the weekend, at me on social media. You bought more shirts than I've sold over the last four years. I'd really like to know who you are so I can just say thank you personally. When she was good, she was very good. But when she was bad, she made film history. Whether making films, writing plays, or flirting with the camera, Mae West was undisputably the most controversial sex siren of her time and even landed in jail because of it. She was the queen of double entendres on and off screen. I see a man in your life. What, only one? I changed
1: my mind. Does
2: it work any better? Well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried.
1: I am delighted I have heard so much about you.
2: Yeah, but you can't prove it.
0: You know the joke, is that a gun in your pocket? Are you just happy to see me? Yeah, that was West in She Done Him Wrong in 1933. Mary Jane West was born in Queens, New York in 1893 to a boxer turned cop and former corset and fashion model. That is two separate people, by the way. The acting bug bit the heck out of her when she was tiny, with West bringing home talent show prizes beginning at the age of five. At age 12, she became a professional vaudeville performer. She was secretly married at age 17, but only lived with her husband for a few weeks though they wouldn't legally divorce for another 31 years. The adult West was rumored to have secretly married another man, but on the whole, she preferred her men younger. Her long-term partner, Paul Novak, was 30 years her junior. West was also rumored to have worn custom 8-inch platform heels because she was only 5 foot 2. Two tangents, I would have massive respect for anyone who could even stand in 8-inch platforms, let alone act. Most stripper heels are only like 4-inch platforms. And that's something all the women in today's discussion have in common. They're all my size. Something about being tiny in the world just makes you sassy. In 1926, under the pen name Jane Mast, West wrote, produced, and starred in a play called Sex about a sex worker wanting to better her situation by finding a gentleman of independent means to marry well, if not wisely. May West was arrested and sentenced to 10 days in jail and a $500 fine, charged with obscenity and corrupting the morals of youth. The rumor mill went into overtime when she was behind bars. People claimed she was permitted to wear her silk underpants instead of prison issue, Or that the warden wined and dined her every night. West was set free after serving eight of the ten days and remarked to reporters it was the first time I ever got anything for good behavior. Before the show was raided in February 1927, around 325,000 people had come through the turnstiles. That's a lot of buns in seats. Not bothered in the slightest and probably keenly aware of all the free publicity she just got, West appeared in a string of successful plays, including The Drag, a 1927 play that was banned from Broadway because of its homosexual theme. If you think people try to tell you what you can and cannot say these days, imagine having to deal with the likes of The Hayes Code or the Catholic Legion of Decency, which I maintain sounds like a really boring pro wrestling tag team. She was an advocate of gay and transgender rights, which at the time was generally thought to be the same thing. Her belief that a gay man was actually a female in a male body was progressive for the time, but ran counter to the belief that homosexuality was an illness. Her next play, The Pleasure Man, ran for only one showing before also being shut down. This time, the entire cast was arrested for obscenity but they got off thanks to a hung jury. West continued to stir up controversy with her plays, including the Broadway smash Diamond Lil in 1928 about a loose woman in the 1890s. Dominating the Broadway scene was nice and everything, but West had her sights set, well, to the West and Hollywood. She was 38 years old at the time, an age when usually the phone stops ringing for actresses. But Paramount Pictures offered her a contract at $5,000 a week, us about 80 grand now. And, luckily for all of us, or I might not be talking about her right now, they let her rewrite her dialogue.
1: Uh, You were wonderful tonight.
0: I'm always wonderful at night.
2: (laughs) Aren't you forgetting that you're married? I'm doing my best. What's a good a resistant temptation? There'll always be more.
0: Her first film, Night After Night, set the tone for her on-screen persona right from Jump Street. Her first line, where a hat-check girl says, Goodness, what beautiful diamonds! To which she replies, Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. Within three years, she was the second highest-paid person in the United States. Not highest actress or thespian, highest-paid person, second only to publishing magnate friggin' William Randolph Hearst. Mae West not only created her own career, but she insisted a young Cary Grant be cast opposite her, putting Grant on the road to his Golden Age icon status. That was 33's She Done Him Wrong, which contains her most famous quote, But I'm sorry to tell you, you've been saying it wrong your whole life. Yes, your whole life. You've seen it parodying cartoons and TV shows for forever. The line isn't, why don't you come up and see me sometime? It's, I should come up sometime see me. Am I being painfully pedantic to the point of pointlessness? Yes. That's all. The public loved Mae West, but her blunt sexuality on screen rubbed censors the wrong way, no pun intended. In 1934, they began deleting overtly sexy lines and whole scenes from her films. Not about to take that lying down, again, no pun intended, West doubled up on the double entendres, hoping the censors would delete the worst ones and leave her the others. More controversial films followed. West was already 50 when she made The Heat's On, but her youthful look and, of course, her stage presence made the film a cult favorite. She also got herself banned from the radio for a sketch about Adam and Eve opposite Don Amici, was on television a few times, and even recorded two successful rock albums, decades before the late Christopher Lee started doing heavy metal. Bonus fact, Cassandra Peterson, aka Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, who, if you haven't seen the Matt Baum episode about her on YouTube, Do check it out. Link in the show notes. Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, was once the lead singer of an Italian punk band. You know who else is equal parts sassy and smart? The great people who leave reviews for the podcast. Like my instant friend, Tally Hawk. If you get that reference, yay. If you don't, you're probably younger than me who went on Podchaser.com, which is like the IMDb of podcasts, and left a review saying, Moxie's podcast is one of the best out there. She shares amazing and varied facts and has a fantastic voice. Whenever someone asks me for a podcast recommendation, I always tell them about her show. The topics are well-researched and her wit is delightful. Best of all, there aren't multiple people talking over one another, making things difficult to hear. Everyone should add this podcast to their list. Thanks for providing so much educational entertainment. And thank you, Tally Hawk, for taking the time to leave a review, even though it required extra steps. And of course, if you want to hear your opinion read on the show, leave me a review on your podcast player of choice or at podchaser.com. And of course, we do need more reviews for the Your Brain on Facts book available at local booksellers now. Now, Tally Hawk's a very clever person because they know that sharing the show is the best way to support your favorite podcasters. But I sure wouldn't mind if you, say, visited patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts to support the show financially, or if you want to do a uh, one-and-done pass-by-the-tip jar. I'm also on Ko-fi, which is ko-fi.com. I always used to call it Ko-fi. Ko-fi. slash yourbrainonfacts.
2: And now a word from our sponsors.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Surfshark, and I am so glad they contacted me because just a few months ago, my password got compromised, which wouldn't have been as much of a problem if I wasn't using it on a whole bunch of different websites. Websites, hackers, and various third parties track our activity across the internet, but we can skip all of that with Surfshark. It hides your location and makes it more difficult to identify you in a crowd of users. I'm really grateful to have it now because I'm going to a voiceover conference at the end of the month. I don't know what kind of Wi-Fi I'm going to be hooking up to. And you guys know me, I love watching British television, but I can't always find the series I want because I live in the good old U.S. of A., well, not with Surfshark, I don't. At least not when I'm trying to watch Taskmaster. Get Surfshark VPN for a 30-day risk-free trial at Moxie. And use the promo code MOXIE for 83% off and 3 extra months free. Yeah, 83% off and 3 extra months. surfshark.deals. slash MOXIE. Promo code MOXIE.
2: I'm Jane Polez
0: The script for this episode started with Bankhead, West, and Dorothy Parker. I recognized they were all demographically pretty similar, though Parker was Jewish and there is a wild theory out there that West was mixed race. So I started asking around for women of color or LGBTQ folks of the same era, and one name came up again and again. A name I'd never heard. An oversight... I now know to be a damn shame if ever there was one. Presenting for the elucidation of many listeners, Moms Mabley. Moms, plural, not possessive, had been a vaudeville star for half a century on what was called the Chitlin circuit before white audiences began to discover her. Her trademarks were her old lady persona, complete with house dress, dust cap, and waddling shuffle, and her raunchy, man-hungry humor, which is funny in a few ways when you consider she was an out-and-proud lesbian. Although moms spent her professional life making people laugh, her personal life had more than its share of grief. If you're not in the mood for tragic backstory right now, and I totally understand it, go ahead and hit your Jump 30 button. Born Loretta Mary Aiken in North Carolina in 1894, Mom's was the granddaughter of a slave and one of 16 children. She was the victim of rape twice before the age of 14, once by an older black man and the other time by the town's white sheriff. Both incidents resulted in pregnancy. Both babies were given away. Loretta's father, a volunteer fireman, had been killed when a fire engine exploded, and her mother was hit and killed by a truck, coming home from church on Christmas Day. Her stepfather forced her to marry a man she didn't even like, one assumes to pare down the number of dependent minors in the house. At the age of 14, Loretta ran away to join a minstrel show. A young girl out in the world on her own would normally be a recipe for disaster, heartache, and suffering, but she'd had enough of that already, thank you very much. She took the name Mabley from her first boyfriend and acquired the nickname Moms later on, possibly for her maternal attitude and maybe as a nod to her grandmother, who was no-nonsense but always supportive. She was only in her early 20s when she devised her old lady character, and she kept that persona up until her actual age exceeded the character. Like all who played vaudeville, she had multiple gifts—dancing, singing, joke-telling. Boy, don't you wish actors these days could also play like five musical instruments and dance like the Marx Brothers used to? Unlike many of her contemporaries, though, she had a gift for crafting original material far stronger than the stock routines that others were touring with. At the prompting of the vaudeville team Butterbeans and Susie, she moved to New York City and found herself Smack in the Harlem Renaissance I never went back across the Mason-Dixon line recalled Mabley not for another 30 years Toward the end of her life Mom said of the South There were some really horrible things done to me I played every state in the Union except Mississippi I won't go there They ain't ready She hardly needed to back then anyway Playing the Apollo so often she could probably have gotten her mail delivered there There used to be a showbiz expression, it won't play in Peoria, meaning something that will not be successful for a wide, Joe Everyman, read, white, audience. And moms certainly fit that bill. She talked about sex constantly. Now that's not surprising from female comics these days. It can still make for a shorter-than-necessary career because it's not as acceptable as it is for the male comics. But unlike the male comics of Mom's Day, she came at her jokes sideways with a double entendre or a well-placed pause to let the audience fill in the gap, rather than the straightforward use of obscenity that would become popular with later comics like Richard Pryor.
1: They sent for me sent me an airplane ticket. No, it ain't, I ain't scared of an airplane. I'm no square, but shown up. No sooner than I got in the plane, they strapped me down. The plane ain't got up no ways hardly for something with up in my head like that. I ain't heard nothing since. Both ears stopped up. Oh, I was so sick. I said, honey, the students come to... I said, honey, my ears is all stopped up. She said, here's some chewing gum. I chewed that. That ain't unstopped them. I said, do something for me, honey i'm dying she said drop your (laughs) jaws and i misunderstood her (laughs) they grounded me in baltimore yeah
0: although loretta herself was a lesbian moms was a dirty old lady with a pension for younger men She made fun of older men, ridiculing the ways they wielded authority over women as their sexual powers declined. Her signature line was Ain't nothing an old man can do for me but bring me a message from a young man. She moved from vaudeville into films, but Hollywood wasn't exactly rolling out the red carpet for black actors and filmmakers. That's okay, they said, we'll do it ourselves. As early as 1929, There were over 400 colored movie houses across America, owned and operated by, and catering specifically to African-Americans with all black casts in films, shorts, and even their own newsreels. But it would be fair to say that these were B-movies at best, filmed in a couple of days with whatever equipment and people they could scrape together. Hell, most scenes were shot in one take because editing requires equipment, time, and money. Where they really shone, though, was in their musical numbers, crafting scenes that would have shamed MGM or Warner Brothers if only they'd had a budget. Comedian Slappy White remembered, It wasn't hard casting the actors. All of us were out of work before the picture started, and we would all be out of work again as soon as it was finished. Mom starred in 1948's Boarding House Blues, where she played landlord to a building full of rent-dodging vaudeville performers, which is an amazing premise. The film also showcased Crip Herd, a tap dancer with one arm and one leg. But the best thing about Boarding House Blues? You can actually watch it. It's on the free Tubi app, not a sponsor, and there's a link in the show notes I'm going to watch it as soon as I can make myself sit down for an uninterrupted 90 minutes. Watch party, anyone? Now, film was nice and everything, but it was vinyl records that gave moms the boost she needed to expand her audience. Comedy records were the thing in the early 60s. Her first vinyl appearance had come a few years prior with 1956 Vanguard Records' release A Night at the Apollo. The album is a fascinating social document with liner notes by Langston Hughes. Of the many other noteworthy things about that album is the fact that Moms wasn't paid for it. She was understandably reluctant when the Chess brothers asked her to cut an album with them. Phil and Leonard Chess were Jewish immigrants who arrived in Chicago a few months prior to the stock market crash. Who were able to buy some Southside bars after the end of prohibition? Their Macomba Lounge became the hot spot for booking live music, mostly rhythm and blues, which drew in the biggest crowds. The brothers noticed this, and that the acts who had people lined up around the block weren't available on records. So they started their own record company. Chess Records signed names like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Bo Diddley, and Chuck Berry. These records delivered newfound joys for the white public and offered posterity for Chicago's African-American community. Always on the lookout for what was popular with their original audience, Chess Records asked Moms Mabley to sign, but she didn't want to get screwed over again. Luckily, her manager was able to persuade her that this was on the up and up, and Moms Mabley on stage, also known as Moms Mabley, the funniest woman alive, was produced. Chicago was also the home to Hugh Hefner's Playboy Club, a venue that always featured a strong roster of black performers and plenty of well-heeled white customers. And that's where she recorded Moms Mabley at the Playboy Club, Y'all have got to see this album cover, there's a link in the show notes. If you were to listen to On Stage and then Playboy Club, you'd notice something different between the two albums. On Stage was recorded at the Apollo and opens with a thunderous cacophony of cheers as she comes on stage. Playboy Club? Not as much, because that album was recorded in front of an all-white audience. It was time for a crossover. It was also time for civil rights. Lunch counters, fire hoses, marches, all in full effect. Mabelie's act was becoming increasingly political. But her funny, toothless old grandma persona made her non-threatening and more accessible to white crowds. Moms knew white audiences needed to hear what she had to say, and now they might actually do that. She was just a little old lady shuffling onto the stage. How dangerous could she be? Plus, she was on the biggest TV shows of the day. Merv Griffin, Johnny Carson, Flip Wilson, Mike Douglas, the Smothers Brothers. And they were okay. So she must be okay, too. Moms had crossed over. She played Carnegie Hall in the Kennedy Center. She put out more albums, including my favorite title, Young men see, old men know. She began acting in big studio films like The Cincinnati Kid with Steve McQueen, though she didn't seem to have made it onto its IMDb listing. In 1966, Moms returned to the South for the first time in over three decades. It uh, didn't go great. In the middle of her show, five shots rang out through the theater, and Moms scrambled for cover. Thankfully, the shots came nowhere near her, originating apparently from a fight between two audience members. Regardless, the story made the rounds that one of the bullets had gone straight through her floppy hat. I hadn't been in Columbia, South Carolina for 35 years, she explained, and now bullets ran me out of town. Music became a regular part of her act, and a cover version of the beautiful song Abraham, Martin, and John hit number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 in July of 1969, making Mabley, at 75, the oldest living person to have a U.S. Top 40 hit. Mabley continued performing in the 70s. In 71, she appeared on The Pearl Bailey Show, and later that year, opened for Ike and Tina Turner. She was finally cast to star in her own film, 1974's Amazing Grace but sadly, during the filming, she suffered a heart attack. She received a pacemaker and was able to return to work a few weeks later, but passed away subsequently. She survived not only by her children, she had four other children as an adult, but by more contemporary comedians who remembered her and want to keep her story alive. She was the subject of a Broadway play by Clarice Taylor, who played one of the grandmas on The Cosby Show, two projects from Whoopi Goldberg, one being the comedy show that put Goldberg on the map in '84, and a documentary in 2013, and most recently, in the season 3 finale of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where she was lovingly and enthusiastically portrayed by lifelong fan Wanda Sykes. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Dorothy Parker's wit was, deservedly, the stuff of legend. Of the Yale College prom, she said, If all the girls attending it were laid end to end, I wouldn't be at all surprised. It was that saucy sort of humor that got her fired from her job as a staff writer at Vanity Fair. Parker spoke openly about having had an abortion, something that was simply not done in the 1920s, saying, It serves me right for putting all my eggs in one bastard. A firm believer in civil rights, she bequeathed her literary estate. To Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and it passed to the NAACP on his death. Remember, you can find these source links for the show as well as the full script at YourBrainOnFacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe, please.
2: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply Search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.